a big part of our mission statement, as most of you would understand and know, it's, it's love disciples sent. And that's exactly what we're doing. And this um, investment that we've made in this couple, but also the investment that they made in Turkey, is going to bring a blessing back to our church in such a powerful way. Thank you, guys. We're really proud of you. And, uh, but we're grateful that you're home as well. And it's really great to see you this morning. We're speaking about living an uncompromised life. And um, I want to share just briefly this morning part two of this series. Really, it's chapter two of the book of Daniel. If you've not read the book of Daniel, uh, it's inspiring. Uh, it can be somewhat confusing because there's a lot of prophetic things in the book. In fact, they say you can't really understand the book of Revelation at the end of the New Testament unless you understand Daniel because they really tandem together in terms of, of theology and the prophecies that come forth and everything. But one of the unique things about this book is that there's four teenagers that are taken captive from Jerusalem when Jerusalem is defeated by King Nebuchadnezzar and their captives are brought into Babylon to be retrained and indoctrinated to serve in the palace under this king but yet these four young teenagers are very unique in the fact that they love God with all of their heart and they're not willing to bend or compromise their faith or their convictions. Something that is really rare uh, in our culture and society today but as a believer we know that there's things that are deep-seated in our heart and they're in this relocation, they're in this transition, we're in a place with a different culture, a different language, different food, everything is so different. I mean, you talk about really culture shock, these four young men would be in culture shock in that regard. And I mentioned to you last Sunday that oftentimes our unexpected transitions and changes, it tests our character and convictions, but it also grows our faith and our character. And I want to say this morning that I know that many of you are in that, They're the change and the transition and all that. And I mentioned last week that change and transition can make us vulnerable uh, in a situation to maybe compromise convictions because it's just much easier. Or it can put us in a situation where we can really claim some of the greatest victories of our life in that. We have a large group of people here from uh, Seattle that came down with Josh and Katie to help them. I admire the sacrifice. I admire that they've come all of this way from their leaving their families, their friend, their community to come here and resettle in the valley, not knowing a lot of people. And in that transition and change, there can be homesickness, there can be doubt, there can be questions about, did I make the right decision? You know, and they're sitting at home late at night thinking about Seattle, especially this time of the year. I'm sure they would love to be in Seattle uh, right now. I'd love to be with you and <laughs> go up there as well uh, in that place. But I think that it brings us to a place where we cannot be become vulnerable in our conviction knowing this is where God called me, this is where God brought me, and not let the enemy make us vulnerable in that place. Transition and change can have a, what I call a killing effect though, and the promises and the words we embrace in our Christian life early on, it's always in danger of dying. Those words that were spoken, God gave me a perspective of his will, and I was willing to lay it all down and give my life to him, give my future to him, make decisions for ministry and go wherever God wants me to go. But then we actually get in that, like Daniel and his friends in Babylon, in this place where literally they are enslaved, they've been held, they're held captive there, and they don't get to choose what they do, what they say, 
but they only do what the king tells them to do. And they're, they're really just slaves in the palace and under the king. But yet there was something about their character and something about their conviction that put them in a place that they're not going to live an uncompromised life, even in this setting. And we see that they're cast into a pit of lions, they're cast into a fiery furnace and these scenarios, and yet they stand strong in their faith. And I want to say to you again and remind you here this morning that as we live this life as a believer, there's going, I said last week, there's going to be pits, there's going to be fire and testing, and these places where literally our faith is going to be on the line, and we have to stand before the Lord and say, God, I'm not going to bend or compromise. I found a statement that uh, in some old notes of mine that I think is very true. It says that crisis does not make the man. Instead, they reveal the man. And I will say woman as well, okay? Crisis doesn't make the man and the woman, but instead it, it reveals the man and woman. What does it reveal? It reveals really what's inside of us and our, our core convictions, our character. It, when we're under that pressure, when we're under that um, uh, that consequence that if I, you know, stand strong, that it could really cost me dearly, that my life could be threatened as Daniel and his friend's life were threatened as well, as we read in this remarkable story about his life. And I want to speak to you this morning about that, living this uncompromised life, but really focusing in on, on crisis. Daniel purposed in his heart in chapter one, and we established that last week, that if you remembered one verse out of chapter one, it said that he already had purposed in his heart that he would not eat any food that would defile him. And they basically lived on vegetables and water during that time, and they become healthier than all of those around them that were captive there being trained as well. And they weren't willing to really compromise their conviction in that area. But it was something that they'd already made up their mind way before they got to that point. They didn't wait for that. It's like, I purpose in my heart. There are certain places, certain things that I don't do. I won't go there. And it literally saves them in this scenario when they're faced with this situation. And then we go into chapter two. Let's read the first six verses together out of the New King James Version. It's the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. They've been through their training. They've been established as a part of the, the wisdom team of men in the palace. And Nebuchadnezzar has dreams. And his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. And the king gave the command to call in. Listen, this is his team. Magicians, astrologers, sorcerers, and the Chaldeans, who are also uh, like sorcerers, to tell the king his dreams. He has a team of those that are dabbling literally in witchcraft, depending on a supernatural source from the wrong source, obviously, to give interpretation and wisdom to the king. Now, this was common even with Joseph. In the past, it was common with Moses. When he went before the Pharaoh, he called in his sorcerers to challenge Moses. It was a common practice to build a team of those dabbling in the dark side of the supernatural because that's all that they knew to gain even wisdom beyond from the wrong God, from a supernatural source in the dark realm. And he brings them in and he says to them, O king, I'll live forever. They tell him, your servants, uh, ser servants the dream and we will give the interpretation. In other words, tell us what you dream so that we can understand it and we'll establish an interpretation. But the king has something different in mind. He said, my decision is firm. And he said, if you do not make known the dream and the interpretation, here's what's going to happen. You're going to be cut into pieces. Your house will be made an ash heap. And 
you tell the dream and interpretation. You receive from me gifts, rewards, and great honor. Therefore, not only tell me the dream, but the interpretation. This makes it a little more difficult. I'm not going to tell you what I dreamed about, but I want you to tell me what I dreamed about along with the interpretation. Well, it leaves them somewhat helpless in this scenario. It's like they can't even begin to guess what he dreamed. Now, anybody can make up some interpretation with fancy words and try to impress the king, and I'm sure that they did that, but he kind of lays it out that my decision is firm. If you don't do this, you're going to die. This is a crisis. And in many times of our life, maybe not a crisis where we're going to die, but it's, it's a crisis, so many different crises that we face in life. And, and many of you are sitting here this morning, you're maybe faced with a financial crisis. Some of you might be faced with a health crisis. And there's been some in our family recently. Some of us are faced with just different kinds of crises. In other words, it's like, I can't do this on my own anymore. I need a supernatural power. I need supernatural grace of God to help me through this situation. It's a crisis, and I'm not sure how to manage it. And we face different kinds of crisis all the time where the doctors will throw up their hands and say, there's nothing more that I can do. My father was just diagnosed with a very rare syndrome where his immune system's attacking his nervous system. They don't know what's causing it. He literally caused him to be paralyzed where he can't even walk. And the doctor said, there's chances he'll fully recover. There's chances he won't. We don't know what causes it. We don't know how to stop the immune system from attacking the nerves of his body. It was a crisis as we stood there in the hospital and some of the best neurologists in all the world at Barrows are saying, there's not a whole lot that we can do. That's a crisis. And it's those crises that don't really make you, but it reveals what's inside of you. My dad is laying there and saying, it's going to be okay. We're going to put our trust in the Lord. We're going to put our trust in the promises of God. We know and we believe that God could heal. And there's a process of healing. Let's believe now. And you know, we're all standing there just trying to grasp our faith. And my dad just laying there saying, we're going to get through this. And I think with, in this situation that we understand that Daniel is a part of this wise team. And it says down in verse number 11, it's a difficult thing the king is requesting. And there's no other who can tell it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. And for this reason, the king was very upset and mad. And he gave a command to destroy all of the wise men of Babylon. That included Daniel and his three friends there and included them. So the decree went out and they began killing the wise men. And they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them as well. This is a crisis. My life is on the line here. They're killing everybody. And the king is upset because nobody can tell his dream. And Daniel is faced once again with one of the greatest tests of his life in this scenario, being a young man. It's like, God, why did you put me here? God, why did I have to come here? I didn't do anything wrong. It was because of a disobedient king in Jerusalem that I'm paying the price and being held captive here in Babylon, and now my life is on the line. But yet, in the, the trueness of his character, he knows how to just continue to honor God and to stand on what he believes in. And for this reason... It says in verse 16, Daniel went in and he asked the king to give him time that he might tell the king the interpretation and the dream. And he went to his house and made the decision known. 
to his three friends, Hananiah and Mishelah and Azariah and his companions that they might seek the mercies from God of heaven concerning the secret so that Daniel and his companions might not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. So Daniel blessed the God of heaven. They probably have the very first prayer meeting in this scenario, what does he do the first thing in a crisis? He prays. He doesn't just pray by himself, but he gets his three companions and says, guys, here's the thing. Either we need to really hear from God, this is a desperate moment, or we're all going to die. I can't imagine the urgency as they're seeking the Lord for this interpretation and what the dream is so they can go back to Nebuchadnezzar, literally not only save their lives, but the lives of all these other people. Everything's on the line here. And the first principle in a crisis, it really is basically simple. It's a prayer. It's a time we come together and we pray. And the first part of those prayers is, God, this is out of our hands. This is out of our control. Lord, there's nothing I can do to convince the king. There's nothing I can do to convince the doctors. There's nothing I can do to bring in the finances that are needed here. But God, I need your help. And I have said it oftentimes where our strength ends is where the strength of God begins. Somebody say amen. amen. And God honors those kinds of prayers. Like, I'm at my end. I'm at my breaking point here. I have nothing left, oh God. And that's where the Lord graciously with his mercy steps in. It's like, that's okay. Your strength is in it, but this is where mine will come in. And they give Daniel, God gives Daniel this dream and interpretation. And then he says in verse 20, blessed be the name of God forever and ever for wisdom and might are his. And he changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and secret things and he knows what is in the darkness and light dwells with him. I thank you and I praise you, O God, my fathers. You've given me wisdom and might and how you've made this known to me. He averts a crisis in this situation. And I think it's just fantastic how he averts this. And I was thinking about crisis and I, I, I looked up about a crisis management in companies and businesses and most major companies have a, a crisis management policy or plan that when they're faced with maybe a public relations crisis or faced with a financial crisis in their company, they've already got a plan in place. They've already got a set of convictions or core values or policies in place so that if that crisis happens, which every company as it goes through growth and development face different levels of crisis. But I think so many believers and so many Christians, they don't have a crisis management plan. It's like, what are you going to do when you're in a situation where everything is on the line? Are you, do you understand that you've got to run to the Father? You've got to run to the Lord and begin to pray like this man prayed. You understand what it is to pray and to get a hold of God and to hear his word in your life and to go into the scripture and God will really speak to you. That's a part of a crisis management plan for a believer. I read that over, there's over 27 million businesses in the United States. Do you know that 99% of them are small businesses with less than 500 employees? 99%. And probably 99% of those small businesses have very little, if any at all, a crisis management policy or plan or strategy of what they're going to do. And here's why we know that. That 40% of those small businesses, which represent 99% of all the businesses of America, 40% of them, when they're faced with a crisis, they, they shut down, they go out of business, and they die. 
Almost half. Because they don't have a plan. And the wise men of Babylon desperately needed a crisis management plan. But God had a plan. God sent these four young men to Babylon for a purpose and a reason. They're not just stuck there being enslaved and their life is miserable. But they knew and they perceived that for whatever reason that we're here, even though because it was sin, it wasn't our fault. We don't want to be here. But God placed us here. And there's many seasons and times of our life where the Lord puts us in a situation that it, it, it seems miserable. It's like, I don't like this. I don't deserve this. I would have never chosen Babylon. I would have never chosen to be in a place where I have to be a captive and, and serving a king who is ungodly and being in a kingdom that's not my home. I would have never chose that, but God chose it. God chose it. And when we surrender our life to him, He's the one that chooses and leads and guides. But God had a bigger picture, bigger plan for them, just like he did with the Joseph, just like he did with the Moses. And, and so many other spiritual greats that we read about in Scripture, God had a purpose. And this was one of them right here among many to come in the chapters of the book of Daniel. They begin to thank the Lord. I thank you and I praise you. And I, I thought about this as they're going through those verses and they're thanking, praising the Lord. And I, I believe that our level of faith is often indicated by how long it takes us to start praising God. How many of you, when you pray for a breakthrough and an answer, do you wait till you get the breakthrough and the answer before you start thanking God for it? Because in faith, it's like, I know God's going to give me an answer. I know God is going to give me a breakthrough. And I start thanking him for it, even though it physically and practically has not arrived yet. It has not come. But I'm thanking him for it. It's a level of faith. It's like, God, I don't know the timing, but I know the answer is on the way. Hallelujah. It's coming. God is faithful to us. He's faithful to the church and, and we just praise him. We begin to thank him. When we pray and make those requests to the Lord, it's like we begin to thank and praise him for that. And in verse number uh, 25 through 28, he brought Daniel before the king. In verse 25, I found a man of the captives of Judah who will make known to the king the, the interpretation. And so he brought Daniel in who they had changed his name to Belshazzar and he said, are you able to make known me the dream which I have seen its interpretation? And he answered in the the presence of the king and said the secret which the king has demanded the wise men the astrologers the magicians and soothsayers they cannot declare to the king but there is a god in heaven i could use the word selah stop right there there is a god in heaven and if there was a title to his message, if there was a proclamation to Nebuchadnezzar that Daniel boldly goes into that palace and looks him square in the eye and says, there is a God in heaven. This is not me. This is not going to be from your astrologers and soothsayers or sorcerers. Not going to be from any of that. But there is a God in heaven and he is the sole and the one and only God. And he begins to make a proclamation who reveals secrets and he's made known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days your dream and the visions in your head upon your bed were these. And he begins to lay out about what's going to happen that, that Nebuchadnezzar represents this statue he had in his dream with the gold head. And then there was the iron and the bronze and the clay feet. And he goes in and starts giving prophetic utterances of what the dream is that after this king there'll be this king and this leader. And we have seen over the centuries literally these prophetic utterances come to pass except for the final one which is Jesus accepts up his final kingdom prophetic utterances we've seen 
the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans rule in this area. Do you know that, that, uh, that this is an area of Iraq? Modern-day modern Babylon is in Iraq, is where Daniel was. And they have, they've discovered many of the places there, literally gates that they've reestablished and built and brought to museums. And we know that Daniel probably walked through those gates and those areas of Babylon at that time. And what he prophesied precisely happened where we've seen the Roman Empire and the Greek and Alexander the Great and the Persians that ruled in that area and then the final kingdom that will be set up forever and ever is Jesus and the kingdom of God and that is yet to come. It's all in these words that Daniel gives to King Nebuchadnezzar. Something begins to happen here and there's really just three quick principles I want to share with you. Just three simple principles that help us to live an uncompromising life. First of all, and I mentioned it, is prayer. Just communication with God, just talking to God and saying, God, I, I, I'm in this crisis. I'm, you know, I'm in this transition. I don't know why I'm here, but we, we communicate. Prayer is just communication. It's talking to God and, and praying with a belief and that he hears us and that he will answer and he will give interpretations of our situation and perspective. And the second thing in the principle is through the prayer is we get perspective. You could use the word revelation. There are so many things in my life, not just as a leader, but in my personal life in revelation, you know, in relationship with the Lord where it's like, God, I need a revelation about my scenario, my situation. Because when we get a revelation, we know how to make decisions on that revelation and that truth. When we get a revelation, we understand and we know what the next step would be. And then thirdly, there's the power of the Holy Spirit uh, begins to intervene in the situation. I pray. I get perspective and revelation. And then I just walk and live in the power of the Holy Spirit knowing that this is in the hands of God, that the Lord's going to move in this situation, the power of the Holy Spirit. Three principles that are uncompromising and so very important in our lives. And then the story, it ends in chapter two and he fell on his face, it says in verse number 46, before Daniel and laid prostrate this king. He commanded they should present offering and incense to him and the king answered and said, uh, or Daniel answered, said, truly your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings, they said, proclaims here, and the revealer of secrets since you could not reveal the secret. So literally Nebuchadnezzar is confessing this and the king promoted Daniel and gave him great gifts and made him ruler over the providence of Babylon. Sounds like a Joseph. And a chief administrator, but he didn't forget his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, over the, and he put them over the affairs of the province of Babylon. And Daniel sat in the gate of the king. Instead of a death sentence, there's a promotion. Look at the difference here. He's going to die. But God steps in, he prays, he gets revelation. The power of the Holy Spirit is working and the king literally is laying prostrate before him, gives him a promotion to rule in this kingdom of Babylon. He raises up his friends and he goes from a death sentence to a promotion and authority and ruling along with this king. I mean, an amazing transition begins to happen and it, we need to grasp this and understand that in our life as well, these same kinds of things can begin to happen. It's what I would call a biblical crisis management plan. How many recognize the name Rosa Parks? So 
some of you are nodding your head. Yeah, Rosa Parks is, she's famous. Let me read just a brief depiction of her story that when things changed in her life so dramatically, it was in 1955. She's 42 years old. She's a black woman. She's exhausted from a hard day at work and she refused to sit in the back of the transit bus. And the southern bus driver warned her that her defiance would be cause for him to call the police and have her arrested. And, but she just was fed up. And just to put it bluntly, she was sick of the white bigotry that was taking place in our culture. She resented being judged by the color of her skin instead of by the integrity of her heart. And she steadfastly refused to move. She stayed in the seat. And this is a remarkable point of our history uh, when the civil rights movement was barely even thought of. And this wasn't that long ago. Her name was Rosa Parks. She stepped out of the crowd and made the call. She wasn't a part of a movement because there was no movement at the time. Instead, Miss Parks put her shoulder into the boulder of history and gave it a shove and history moved. She didn't cause a movement, but she created a forward motion. And later in life, Rosa wrote this, without a vision, the people perish, but without courage, dreams die. She had a vision, but she also had the courage to say, I'm not moving. I'm not going to tolerate this anymore. It's wrong. It's wrong. It's wrong. There was a conviction deep inside of her. She had a Daniel spirit. Knowing that it could cause her to be arrested, it could cause an uprising, but it causes the right kind of uprising because out of that moment that Rosa Parks refused to succumb any longer to the bigotry that was taking place, she sat there and just by her posture and just by saying, no, I won't move, it was that simple, it, it spurred and it birthed the civil rights movement so that people would be treated by the content of her character and not by the color of their skin. I'm so deep with that one thing. Maybe that's the only thing she ever did in her life, that courageous decision and moment. And we have no idea that in our lives that, that we can make one decision by just saying, no, I won't budge. I'm going to sit and, or stand on my conviction. I'm not going to let you shove me into a place of compromise. I want to live a life that's uncompromising. And that's exactly what she did. And many others after her and before her, those like Daniel, that it changed the course of history. It didn't take a, a special person, somebody who maybe has a long list of diplomas or degrees, somebody who maybe highly, it didn't matter. It just took a person that had a Daniel spirit that just said, I'm going to stand on what I believe on, on what is right, even if it costs me, even if I'm sold into slavery, even if I'm taken captive, even if I'm arrested and put into jail, I need to make a statement to my children and my grandchildren. I need to make a statement to my church. I need to make a statement to those that are in my generation and, and take a stand for what is right. And the stories that, that we can read over our American generations of history would point out just very special and unique people like a Rosa Parks, and I'm inspired by that. Romans 15, 14 says that for whatever was written in earlier times, and I put in parentheses the book of Daniel was written in earlier times, Paul is saying, and was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. That we might have hope. 
And I think it is so important that we always live and walk and breathe in hope. That this story, that these chapters about the life of Daniel in this series, it's to help us to persevere. It's to help us to stand. It's to help us to say, God, I want a spirit like Daniel so that I can have hope for my future. And Lord, I'm not gonna bend. And I'm not gonna bow down. Even if a king threatens my, somebody in authority threatens my life or threatens to throw me in jail or threatens whatever, but God, I know that what is right in my heart and the convictions that you have put within there, I think that this is what gives a sense of dignity for us as a believer. It gives a sense of honor. That when we're faced, we go through transitions and changes and some of the crisis that we deal with in our life, that's, it's not what makes us, it's what reveals what really is inside of us. And my prayer for this church, my prayer for you, is that God would establish deep within the core of your spirit, you know, the very principles that Daniel lived his life on and that through that, God says, I'm not just going to preserve you. I'm not going to just protect you. But I'm going to promote you. Do you see that? I'm going to promote you. Like a Joseph was promoted in Egypt. Like a Daniel was promoted in Babylon. Like a Dana is promoted in Scottsdale. Because I stand strong. I don't want to live an uncompromising life. God says, I'm going to give you the kind of blessing that's different than a king or the world would give you. But I'm going to bless you with honor and dignity. And I can take your past with all your mistakes and your sins and your shortcomings and the disobedience and place it under the blood of Jesus. And it's been cleansed and, and it'll, it'll never be remembered again. It's thrown into the sea of forgiveness. I wipe the slate clean. This is a new day. And you can walk in dignity and you can walk in honor from this day forward. For every time that you ask God to forgive you and to cleanse you, he does that. And th this is the first day, as they say, for the rest of your life. That's the grace that we walk in. That's the grace that we live in. That's the grace that we say to the enemy. You know what? I live a life full of grace and love and forgiveness with my God. And you cannot put condemnation on me or shame or anything else. This is the life that I live. And we walk in the course of Daniel's spirit. Amen. Have our team come this morning. I appreciate what Abraham was saying and it gives a fresh perspective and a memory again. You're right, Abraham. I, I sat in many tea stalls in Bangladesh in a country that's 98% Muslim and there was only less than a half a percent of this country at that time of 130 million people that were believers. Millions. And I'd sit in the tea stall and, and I, it brought back the memories Abe, that I believe in Jesus. Yeah, he was a great prophet. So why do I need to become a Christian? Why do I need to be a Christ follower? And I would sit there, it's like, ah, oh, they're not getting it. I mean, like Abraham said, they, they're already saying, they, I pray five times a day. And I'm thinking, yeah, you pray more than I do. And these guys are so devoted. They would give their life for what they believe in and they do every day. 
I mean, they're stellar in their commitment and their dedication, and, but there's, there's something missing. And I remember one conversation that I had, Abe, it was, I said, I want to ask you, just give me an honest answer. You, you go and you pray five times a day in the mosque and everything, because and, and, they recognize that there's sin in their life and they struggle. And, and I'd have conversations about the guilt and the shame and the condemnation. I said, you know, after five times praying in the mosque, every, you know, when you come home at the end of the day, at the night, just be honest, do you still feel the shame and the, or any of the condemnation or guilt of your, of your wrongdoing or sin? Oh, of course we do. That's why we go back the next day and pray five more times. And the day after that, we just, no, it, it doesn't leave. I said, you know, Jesus died for your sin. He, he is the son of God that was sent as a sacrifice for every one of our sins. And we need Jesus in the fact that only his blood can forgive our sins. The blood that he shed on that cross. And I said, I can honestly say to you, I, I don't pray five times a day. I pray. But every morning when I pray, and if there's something I need to bring before the Lord, I can tell you that when God forgives me, he removes the shame and the condemnation and the guilt and all those things. And I said that only Jesus can do that in his precious blood that he shed on the cross. That's why he's the son of God and he came to this world. And so oftentimes it would sit there with no answer or no response. Jesus is a difference maker <laughs> in our life. I, I, I just to be honest with you, there's, there's moments in my life that I didn't get it right and I, I lost my ability to pray and get perspective and revelation and I forgot what it was to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit and I thought I need to take control of my own life right now and my destiny and my future I, I just I didn't have enough faith to trust God with that decision it was a crisis and because it was a crisis I thought I need to take control of this and, and when I did it just turned out bad <laughs> It really did. And I like, oh, I wish I could go back and change that. And I've had a lot of those moments where it's, I realized I just moved in my own strength and ability and wisdom. And I, I just didn't trust the Lord. And, and it, it cost me and it was painful. It was just painful. Just because I'm a pastor doesn't mean that I just walk in this uncompromising position all the time because I have a title of a pastor. There's times where I know God is speaking, it's just like, I don't know about this. I feel like I'm in this crisis and everything. I got to try this and try that. And, and it just, it brings me to no solution whatsoever. And I always get back to coming back to the Lord at the foot of the cross and saying, okay, God, I, I'm praying, Lord. And I admit to you, I, I don't know how to do this. I really need your revelation and perspective. And God, I, I need the power of the Holy Spirit. I tried it my way and it didn't work. And like a father, he just kind of embraces us and brings us back into his arms. And it's like, I was hoping you would come back. <laughs> I saw it all, the whole time. And, and we're always welcomed back into the house of the father. And he embraces us with his love and his strength and his power. And it's through that, it's just like we learn obedience through our mistakes, don't we? Is that not true? We learn obedience and we draw closer to him 
from our own failures and mistakes in our life. And that's why the life of Daniel is so inspiring. God gives us a legitimate crisis management plan in our life. Amen. Let's bow our